Winning season returns at MyBookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contests, and squares. At MyBookie, winning season means hitting all your parlays and props with your feet up watching your team trounce their rivals. Rejoice! It's time to celebrate the NFL season. Invest in your intuition. Use promo code ZABE and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play, designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. From live betting to championship futures, every play you want to make is waiting at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks. Win big. Collect your cash. Use promo code ZABE, Charlie, Zulu, Alpha, Bravo, Echo, and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today, only at MyBookie. Today on the Zabecast, a legend in college basketball has passed. Andy Poland, the man who helped launch John Thompson's second career in radio, reflects with me. Also, Andy might be ready to do something rare, and that is admit I was right about Dan Snyder being in trouble. All that plus congrats to Manti Teo for finally finding actual true love. Your daily Kickstarter of Uncensored Me is locked and loaded, so buckle up and let's go! Here we go! Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. Thank you for downloading and thank you for joining me. Welcome to September, everybody, where things are about to get nutty on a number of fronts. First of all, I know you hate politics on this podcast. Can I just get into nonpartisan politics for two quick seconds here? The speech that Joe Biden gave as he finally decided to, you know, get out and start campaigning, better late than never. See, now I'm already being snarky about this. Um, He gets out, he gives a speech. Apparently there was literally like three dozen people there outside just to hear him. It was a very unimpressive crowd, but he got out to go give a speech in public in Pennsylvania, one of the battleground states, and he had trouble putting together a coherent sentence. He was of looking off to the side of the camera, squinting at a teleprompter that he apparently couldn't read, and it was a terrible look. Take a listen. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's a, I mean, you think about it. More lives this year than any other year for the past 100 years. I mean, that is bad right there. You have to pull back from the enormity of this upcoming election and say, is this really going to happen? Are the Democrats really going to put him up there at the ballot box on election day, 63 days from now and say, this is the guy, vote for him. Without openly admitting, although it's kind of understood that he is, he've even he's even said he's a transition candidate. Would the Democrats say after, let's say, Labor Day, give it a week? Would they say, you know what? Okay, we're going to have somebody else step in at the last minute. Could that be the October surprise? They talk about this in politics, the October surprise. There's two other shocking things when it comes to coronavirus. One is that New York City under de Blasio has set a date for indoor dining to return. And that date is June 1st. 
of next year. Are you kidding me? Even though New York State or New York City has a positivity rate of like 0.4%, de Blasio said absent a major step forward a la a vaccine, he doesn't see any indoor dining in the city anytime soon. In California, Gavin Newsom has said, essentially, I don't see sports returning anytime in the future or anytime soon. He's got five stages of, you know, okay, level one, level two, three. And apparently the highest stage of back to normal is still only yellow, not green. And it says businesses may open fully, but with some restrictions, which is kind of not fully, but okay, whatever. When pressed about sporting events or concerts, California and Gavin Newsom and his administration said, yeah, we don't even, we're not even thinking about that right now. We have no plan. Incredible. Incredible to think about this. And then, and then if you want nuts, you got Dr. Burks who said the following today, or this bite came out today. She thinks people should wear masks in their house even when visiting with friends and family in private. We find that when people gather together in private as family members and neighbors, they make assumptions that there couldn't be anybody that has infection there. And then they don't wear their mask and they interact together. And that creates spreading of the virus among family members and among neighbors. Don't wait for the vaccine to do the right thing. Um, do the right thing today, because if we do the right thing today, we go into the fall with much fewer cases. So don't wear it. wait. Wear your mask. Really work on what you're doing in your household to protect your family members when you get together. That is really going to be critical. Unbelievable. Uh, ma'am, you're, you're a looney tune. I can't believe you were put up there in front of the country to advise on what to do, how to handle this, and everything else. Nutso. But hey, if you want to do it, do it. Congrats to Manti Teo. He's he's found his real true love after the famous catfishing scandal that went viral back in 2012. He ended up assuming he was girlfriends with this or boyfriend to a girl that he had never met, but was talking to over the phone. He ended up getting catfished by a dude who was using a falsetto voice who then went on various talk shows to talk about yeah, I'm sorry I did it. I shouldn't have done it, but here's why I wanted to do it. Made Manti Teo look kind of stupid and naive. Nice kid. Good linebacker, all things considered. Not a star, but in the league, so there's that. He just got married over the weekend to Javini Cole, who is an Instagram fitness model and very, very lovely. She's got a nice big booty, but not sloppy, and she's got big athletic legs. She clearly does not skip leg day, toned arms, uh, a sort of a mixed race kind of look to her. She nice. And for good old man Titeo, congratulations. Mazel, mazel. Good things. It's Andy Poland time, everybody. Hello, Andy. We've got a lot to talk about today, but we start 
was sadly a passing of a legend in John Thompson, who you helped start his radio career way back in the day. And we spent many hours, you and I, walking into the studio as they left because they don't do no overtime. And you and I and uh, our third wheel on the sports reporters would take over. And I remember those times so fondly, as I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, and it includes, I think, one of your favorite stories because we've had a lot of laughs over this over the years. Uh, one of our regulars, Tom Levero, mm-hmm. uh, since gotten himself in a little better shape, but at the time was uh, quite a bit overweight. And uh, we came in the studio to, to change studios or change shows. And uh, Doc Walker, who worked with John Thompson, his mother had baked a cake. And uh, he had offered some to Al Koken and uh, coach during the show. And then after the show, he offered a piece of cake to Tom. And Tom said, no, thanks. And Doc said, nah, you don't look like a guy who eats cake. Oh, and- sarcastic Doc. Being <laughs> a Tom- dick. <laughs> and Tom said, hey, I got this body eating pizza and drinking beer. <laughs> and so, Without missing a beat, John Thompson Doc- said... <laughs> cocked his head to one side and said, and did you enjoy yourself? (laughs) With a wry smile, which is how coach would operate. You know, he cut such a imperial, an imperious figure on the sideline in his heyday in the eighties. It was something to behold. And I hear that he was a absolute tyrant when it came to allowing the media access to his team, which he didn't allow much. But it was his way or take the highway. But once he got into radio and started doing a show on a regular basis and was comfortable with it, he was just a totally relatable, everyday, funny-ass dude that we'd see in the office in the studio. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who had watched his coaching career and heard him on the radio said, who is this guy? We didn't know him when he was coaching. And yeah, he was very protective. He wouldn't let freshmen speak to the media. And the way it would work after a game was he would hold his news conference in one room and the locker room would be open as long as his news conference was going on. Once he was finished, the locker room was closed. And that's the way it worked. So you had a choice. You could listen to Thompson or you could talk to players. But the players often had assistant coaches around them who would say, you don't have to answer that. Don't answer that question. Right. And uh, that's the way he operated. Yeah. In the 80s, he built Georgetown into a national power that had cultural significance because of they were the fact that they were an all-black college team in yep. an age in which almost every college team had two or three white guys. Right. All-black team, and they played with a swagger and an unapologeticness that was very appealing to inner-city kids, and they were goddamn good. Now, did they run elaborate, sophisticated, beautiful offenses? Fuck no. They put up shots. They rebounded like hell, and they backed down from nobody, and people loved it. Yeah, and you know the the cultural significance that you talk about. This is I didn't realize this till today that the Georgetown starter jacket, which was a staple for inner city youth back in the eighties, that's now in the African American Museum in Washington D.C. because that's such a a cultural touchstone there, and there were people i'm sure who wore those jackets that had no idea georgetown was a mostly white jesuit school in washington dc 
No yeah. idea whatsoever. Didn't matter because the public face of the university was Coach Thompson and Patrick Ewing, and then later on, Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutombo and Allen Iverson and a slew of other NBA players. I believe Thompson, during his run there, uh, put enough millions on the board in the NBA through the guys he recruited and put to the league. It probably topped a billion dollars of total contracts. Oh, uh, no question. He and he had a, a an accomplice in that, in David Falk. Yeah, the bird of and, prey. Yeah, and, and David Falk basically controlled the market for big men. So whenever one of his big men would get a raise, all the other big men would get raises. So that's the way it worked. Yeah. And yeah. And and Thompson was feeding him an endless supply of, of big men from Morning, Matumbo, Ewing, and on down the line. Back when big men got paid handsomely in this game, right? Nowadays, it's like, can you shoot a three? No, but I can rebound. Yeah, no. Take it down the road. Not interested. So yeah, exactly. The recruiting of Patrick Ewing and landing Patrick Ewing was really the difference maker. Because without that, is Thompson, would he have been what he became? It's uncertain. But Patrick Ewing was key to it. Walk us through the recruiting of Patrick Ewing and how he burst onto the scene. Okay, well, Thompson took over in 1972. He had been working as a guidance counselor at Federal City College, which is now University of District of Columbia. He was also coaching a high school team, St. Anthony's, which was a nowhere team when he took it over, and he built them into a powerhouse. And they would challenge the best in the city, and there was a big rivalry with Morgan Wooten, who he at one point refused to play, and Morgan Wooten coaching at DeMatha. Anyway, he told me years later that in 1972, Georgetown wanted to hire a black coach. And he said, there's no two ways about it. There were other qualified candidates, more qualified than he was, but they wanted to hire a coach. And they told him at the time, you know, it'd be nice if you made the NIT once in a while. And he thought to himself, yeah, that's, I'll do that and maybe a little bit more. And uh, by his third year, he had him in the NCAA tournament. In 1976, he recruited two of the top all-metropolitan players from D.C., and that had not happened before at Georgetown. He got uh, Craig Big Sky Shelton and John Bebe Duren, and they <laughs> built a team that was that was really good. And they that team, that seniors, they ushered in the Big East. They were part of the Big East. And uh, they almost made the Final Four in 1980. They lost to Iowa by a point. Iowa, coached by Lou Olson, who just passed away last week, uh, went to the Final Four and I think even went to the championship game and lost. But um, that that team was was right on the cusp. And then a year later, he recruited Patrick Ewing, and they went to three championship games in four years and, and probably could have won all three. I mean, they had that play in the first one where Fred Brown threw the ball away right. and James Worthy intercepted it. Uh, they didn't make it the following year, but they won it in 84. And in 85, they played Villanova, which pitched the perfect game. They shot 78% yeah. and beat them. Yeah. Fucking pissed yeah. me off yeah. so bad. I, I found it very unfair as a, as a young teenager that they could win a game that way. And that was, of course, before the shot clock. You're and breaking. I, okay, can you hear me now? You're sounded fine. I said that the uh, Villanova game pissed me off because as a teenager, it seemed unfair that a worse team could win that way, you know, in the pre-shot clock era. God damn it. Fuck this. Can you hear me, Andy? I hear you now. Good. All it took was some cussing. I apologize, my dear podcast (laughs) listeners. No, I'll repeat it for the third time. I said yeah. I was pissed me off that loss because it seemed very unfair to me as a 16-year-old teenager that a much lesser team could beat a super team that should have wiped the floor with them. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it was. I was at that game. It was in Lexington, and uh, I remember that the semifinal where they beat St. John's. That was the fourth time they played that year. And Louis Carnesecca, who was the coach of St. John, said, "You got to compare this team with the greats of all time." He yes, said, they're, they're they're very comparable to the Indiana team that had gone undefeated in 1976. And I remember reading in USA Today the morning of the game how Brent Musburger and Billy Packer, who were going to broadcast it for CBS, had prepared lots of film material for when the game became a blowout, that they were going to have lots of stories to talk about to try and keep right. viewers interested when they expected it to become like a 30-point game. And there, there was a stretch there in the second half where Ewing came down the court and had back-to-back dunks, and I said, okay, it's on. that's it. They'll take it from here. Right. And they didn't. I mean, there was that was the last college game, by the way, played without a shot clock. So Villanova was able to uh, hold the ball, set up the shot. And Harold Jensen, the Harold Jensen, who was never heard from again, was like seven of eight in the second half. And and that was really a difference. Yeah. No shot clock, no three. And one of the biggest upsets in college basketball history. I remember, you know, as a teenager watching the Big East on the nascent four-letter red red letter Connecticut cable network that could ESPN, all these Big East games. And I remember Patrick Ewing and, and just how much Thompson guarded him from media access because he was a shy kid who wasn't very eloquent, you know? And because right. of his, uh, you know, his features, he was subject to some of the most vile racism and racial chants around the Big East. And they were throwing oranges at him, uh, or at least on the court in Syracuse at one point. It was mm-hmm. nuts. And Thompson was super protective of Patrick Ewing, and he was that way with all of his players. And so right. that was one of his hallmarks and one of his legacies is that if you were with him, he had your back. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Thompson had faced racism in his own right. He, even though he had taken Georgetown to the NCAA tournament like his third year, they went through a losing streak the year after that, like six straight games. And somebody hung up a sign that said Thompson, and it used the N-word, flop, has to go. And that was you know, taken down. And yeah, and this is, you know, this is the 1970s. This is, you know, Mississippi in the 60s. Right. And that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that he faced. But, yeah, he, he was uh, unbelievably protective of, of the program. And, you know, a quick story from the 85 championship uh, uh, game in Lexington. At that final four, Gary McLean was the point guard for Villanova. And Roly Massimino let his players, you know, roam the hotel lobbies. They were very accessible. Thompson took his team to Louisville, like, 50 miles away and and I took, took him out of it. And I thought, boy, this guy is a control freak. And you know, these are grown paranoia. Yeah. Coined by years earlier by John Feinstein. But I just thought, you know, there's no need for that. You know, these treat these guys like men. Well, come to find out that Gary McLean was coked up for the semifinal win over Memphis state and said that when they visited the white house after winning the championship, he was so coked up. He wanted to jump on Ronald Reagan and tackle him. Mm -hmm. And and I thought later, gee, uh, here, here's a coach who lets his players run free and look what happens. And here's the guy that protects him. And, uh, and we didn't hear any stories like that. His players graduated though. Even the ones that didn't go to the NBA 
And he right. was, in a lot of ways, I thought he was the bookend brother from another mother to Bobby Knight. Now, Knight didn't navigate the sort of niceties of public life as well as Thompson did. And maybe Knight, because he wasn't black, it was treated more harshly. But both those guys treated, they made sure that they did things the right way, even though they could at times be assholes to the media. Well, and, and there was a kinship there that, that uh, Knight talked about. He was a frequent guest on Thompson's show, and he loved them so much he used to get choked up talking about how much he loved right. Thompson on Thompson's show. Yeah. And he said er, early on, Thompson took his team to play at Indiana, and that's when he had Shelton and Dern. And there was a play on the court where play was stopped, and then Thompson called Shelton over close to the Indiana bench and used language that even made Knight <laughs> blush. <laughs> That's hard to do, right? Yeah, and I said, wow, even I wouldn't say that. And so there became this undying respect between the two of them because of that. The uh, the Thompson that I really enjoyed being around the station was just this mirthful, sarcastic, and easygoing, no-bullshit Thompson who would just say little things like, sooky, sooky. He would say, sooky, sooky, as a way of saying, I like it. Like, it could be anything, you know? I get the afternoon off because there's an Orioles game. Sookie, sookie. Or, you know, we yeah. have free sausage sandwiches coming. Sookie, sookie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my badge of honor moment with Coach Thompson came after I was knocked off the postgame show for the Redskins on Comcast because I was basically begging Mark Brunel to bench himself. Yeah, and they didn't yeah, like yeah. that. And somehow word got back to Thompson through his son, Ronnie, who was working for Comcast at the time doing basketball stuff. And Thompson, the next time he saw me, pulled me aside. He's like, hey, man, you keep doing what you do. He's like, don't <laughs> let them bullshit you into changing your opinion. And I was like yeah. taken aback. I was like, damn. I was like, thank you, coach. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Affirmation from the Godfather. It really know? was affirmation, but it was like the because that's how Thompson would roll. He would roll like you know he had gang mentality, and I mean that in a good way. Like he he would cut off media outlets if they weren't friendly to him, and he was like, "Look, I ain't playing. Here's how we're gonna do this." So he right. remembered stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. He he was he was like that, and you know, and one of those stories is. He uh, he got his team together on Christmas Day and he for a practice and he'd walk in the gym and he'd say, "Ho ho ho, Merry Christmas to all!" Now it's time for all of you MFers to run wall to wall. <laughs> yes, yes. He used MF. He used motherfucker as a adverb, adjective, filler, uh, gap, yep. transition word, <laughs> pronoun, post. Now he used it for everything. It was it was like salt in a uh, in a in a in a Cajun chef's recipe book. Yeah. Sprinkle it everywhere. Anyway. There was a, a incident yeah. I want to tell you about before, I think it was before you got to the station, there was a disc jockey named Doug Greaseman Tract, very popular. And he had had an incident where he'd said something racial on the air some years before. And then he had another one. And he was fired from that station. And he went on a rehabilitation tour to whoever would talk to him, led by Rock Newman, who, by the way, is, is black and, mm-hmm. uh, and was, was trying to rehabilitate the image of the Grease Man. And they booked him on Thompson's show. And Thompson said to him, says, you know, boy, I, I like what you did. I used to listen to you on the radio. I think you're funny. He said, but uh, this is really bad. And, and you're going to need to do something here. What do you plan to do? And he said, uh, well, coach, uh, what I'm going to do is try to educate people about racial insensitivity. And Thompson was new, but he understood about the dump button. And he said to the board operator, his name was Rick, he said, 
Rick, you got your finger on that button, boy? And Rick said, yeah, coach, yes, sir, I coach. do. And so he said, good. He said, Doug, I hear what you're saying here, but what you're saying is, boom. And he said the complete phrase, which was one of his favorites. And he said, before you teach, boy, you got to learn. <laughs> You'll never forget that line. Before you teach, you got to learn. That's some bullshit yeah. right there. <laughs> oh, God. Great man, great icon. Absolutely, I think, on the Mount Rushmore of D.C. sports history in terms of his impact and everything else. And, you know, when it ended, it didn't end well. And then his son had some success, but it didn't last. And at this point, the program is just sort of, you know, stumbling along, trying to regain relevance. Yeah, and, you know, Patrick Ewing is the coach now. He's been there for several years. I don't know how much longer he'll last, but if if he is gone within a couple of years, that will be kind of the last vestige of John Thompson. I think they will start over with, with somebody new. Yeah. Changing gears. So you texted me after the latest news came out last week about Dan Snyder saying, well, looks like, Zabe, you might be right about this. Do you believe Dan is now in a death spiral owning this team that he is unlikely to escape from. Yes. The the only thing that could possibly save him, and I don't even see how this can happen, but Beth Wilkinson, who is the attorney who he is going to pay, apparently, to investigate his own team, if she comes up with something that is very minor and there were a couple of things here and there, maybe he gets by it. But if she has the integrity, which I think she has, and if you look at now over 50 women who have come forward, I think another dozen have come forward since this latest article in the Washington Post, I I just don't see how it can happen. I mean, look, in this climate, replace racial with sexual, right? He's out the door today. It's really, really bad. And I think the worst part about it for him is that this tape exists. A videotape made by one of the video department staffers, never Mm -hmm. meant for publication, was zooming in on crotches and titties of the cheerleaders, not random beachgoers at some junket they were on, but actual kind of contracted employees. It doesn't matter per se if he approved of it, recommended it, if it was given to him or whatever. This is the culture that he had under the team, and that is wholly unacceptable. If it was 40 years ago, okay. We're talking the modern day and age. You can't do that shit. And yet he hired people and didn't make sure that those in positions above those people lean down to impose, we don't fuck around. It's something that would never happen with a top franchise in the league, a Pittsburgh, a New England, a Green Bay, et cetera. Right. And look, his latest statement was a typical, you know, uh, I didn't really know what was going on here, but this is unacceptable. Well, you and I did many, many shows from the park, and we would always see the big black Maybach parked in the Mr. Schneider spot. Mm -hmm. So. He was there. Now, yeah. he may have had his I was buried. two hands off. That's the biggest right. bullshit statement ever. Right. I mean, he, he may have been buried in paperwork or in meetings or phone calls. But if, if this is going on for all these years and 50 women plus have come forward on it, there's no way you can say he didn't have any idea what was going on. Right. You don't hire a drunken Scott McLuhan and a heavy drinker in, uh, in uh, what's his name, Gruden, Jay Gruden, 
and then and a drinker in in Bruce Allen and just roll with it without it being a boys club. It was a boys club, and now he's like, okay, I'll clean it up. I think it's too late. I think the NFL right now, because they're just worried about getting the season off the ground, they don't have time for this right now. But by the time January comes, watch. The end will come suddenly. Like a lot of things, how did it fall apart, Andy? Well, slowly at first, and then all of a sudden at the end. I think that's how it's going to go down. Yeah, I I think so, too. And look look at Jerry Richardson. Uh, There was first a Sports Illustrated story, right? And Mm -hmm. then there was an investigation by the team. And then the NFL said, no, 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 we'll take it from here. And that was the end of Jerry Richardson as the owner. So I I, I think it's going to go the same way. I I don't think there's any way it it can't. When it does, I'm buying a sheet cake. And I would (laughs) like to enjoy it with you, Andy. So let's make sure we have such an occasion, okay? Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll be uh, that'll be something. You got any potential buyers? Don't care. Oh, there's tons. Oh, not only are there many potential buyers, but they're looking at this like what an upside opportunity. You're gonna yep. get a new stadium because the 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 district will be glad to work with somebody other than Snyder. You're going to have a new name to start over with, and the market is the market. It's a sprawling, massive government supported market with. No downside. We'll never become Buffalo or Detroit or anything like that. So right. it's huge. It's huge. Somebody will overpay to the tune of nearly $6 million. You watch. You watch. Six billion. You mean six, six billion. billion. Yes, six billion. Six, wow. Well, that's almost twice what it's what it's reportedly worth. But here's, here's if it's just if the, the number's short of five, I'll be shocked. Because well, these yeah, I mean, things that's... these things don't come for sale. Right. And you're right. talking and about that's... DC, not Charlotte, not right. Jacksonville. Well, that's what happened with the Clippers and Steve Ballmer. They paid roughly twice what most people thought the team was worth at the time. Yeah. So Danny clearing out the name issue increased the value of whoever's going to buy it or the yeah. sale value because they won't have to deal with it. If you bought into the Redskins as a legacy name, now you've got the thorny whole thing about, okay, I'm the new owner, but the mm-hmm. old name is still here, but I want to change it over. Now I'm the bad guy. The new owner is not the bad guy for changing the name. Right. I got a scenario for you. Jason Wright who's the president of the team, could he have been sent by the NFL to take this job as president in anticipation that he joins an ownership group and becomes the face of ownership for the Washington team? No, because he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have money. That's true. You don't make guys owners when they don't have any money. The NFL wants owners in an ownership club. There's a Bezos or there's other billionaires that we don't even know who they are. Right. who will step forward and they'll be much better faces of the yes, franchise. But but I think I, I don't know how much money Magic Johnson put into the Dodgers. I know he's not the majority. Yeah, don't owner. don't make Jason Wright a former cardinal into Magic Johnson, okay? <laughs> no, no, but but this this is a league that needs more diversity and it would be a good thing for them to have but a he'd black be a, owner. He'd be a fake black owner. Well, Everyone I, knows it. Maybe, but but I I think that that, that you might have look. We don't know Bezos. Nobody hears from Bezos. Maybe he wants a guy like that out in front. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't even know if Bezos wants to own an NFL team. He's got that's that's another thing. Yeah, plenty of money to do it. Check. <laughs> I know it. It's there if he wants it, but otherwise, did, did yeah. You, did you see by the way his value? I think last two hundred billion first. No, no, two hundred billion dollar guy. Yeah. But in one day, increased by $5 billion. I know. There's your check right there. Oh, I made enough money Thursday to buy the team. Here's a check. The sloshing (laughs) of the water in his massive tanker of money on any given day, depending on how you swish it, could be $5 5 billion up, $5 billion down. Yeah, 
Easy come, easy go, yeah. right? And I got to stop ordering shit off of Amazon as well. I'm starting to get out of hand on that. All right, speaking of money, this is the last ad, and you know a little bit about this because you know a guy who's in the biz. Guess who just got who just guess who just paid for a twenty million dollar one acre estate in uh, Palm Beach, Florida? Phil Swift of Flex Seal fame. Oh, twenty million dollar right crib. Out of the tub. Flex paste is super thick. It clings to the surface and <laughs> it instantly so he, fills gaps. So he is the CEO of all the Flex Seal products. Flex Seal, Flex Tape, Flex Paste. Right. And I'm like, $20 million? I thought he was just the pitch man. But apparently he's the CEO in the company. Now, you know Joe Fowler. Correct. You're good friends with him, and he is a infomercial guy. He does well, but he's not buying $20 million cribs. No, and he doesn't own the company. He's the pitch man for the company. Now, this guy, I guess, does his own pitches. Mm-hmm. But uh, Joe has reached the level where he will get a percentage of sales. Like he started out, he was just getting a flat fee to pitch the product in an infomercial. Now it's based on how many units he sells. And so, yeah, he's done a lot better with that over the years. Okay. And uh, is he rich? Uh, no, he's not rich. He's, he does well. <laughs> he does uh, well. It's, it's an easy job, right? All well, things considered. I mean, well, yeah, but there's more to it than just you know cutting the commercials. He he has to go to trade shows and he has to do you know updates and things like that. It's 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 a full time job with what the various clients he has. Okay. All right. Well, uh, good for uh, good for Phil Steele of yeah. the Flex Steel Company. You ready for football, Andy? I am, and I got to tip my hat to you. Uh, you've been saying all along we're going to have it, and uh, look, the Big Ten really looks kind of foolish now, right now. They, 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 as I've said before, they're like George Clooney's boat in a perfect storm. They're fucked. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. They got caught on the wrong side of the storm. Some bad choices there. I was never sure about college. I just said the NFL is going to force it to happen because they're savages, and that's wh- how they do it. So yeah, and look, no positive tests for players too. You got to handle know. that. I uh, Knock on wood for that. All right, Andy. Uh, welcome to September. As always, thank you for your time. Can we get together sometime soon? Andy, well, as soon as the places open up, I'm game. If we I drove, if I drove the mobile broadcast studio, would you be comfortable sitting inside of it for 20 minutes with me? Or are you still not comfortable with that? No, I'm 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 okay. I've been okay. going to work every day. All right, so good. I'm I'm, I'm I, if I've had it, I've I've <laughs> missed all the symptoms. I did. Andy, you're the last person I'd worry about this thing. You are Mister Indestructible. All right, yes, buddy. Indeed. Thank you. See you. Thanks, Dave. See you. Let's wind down with a couple of emails and some mask madness thoughts. Email Kevin White, Director of Communications for Truman State in Kirksville, Missouri. Zabe, I do radio for our local high school football team. First game was last Friday at the county school just south of ours. They advertised, come one, come all. They said this because COVID cases have been relatively low in their county. They had just six over the last 14 days, according to their dashboard. Well, I went to the game and it was like stepping back to 2019 a time machine to a wonderful land called 2019. No Karens, social distancing police, very few masks, and a packed, excited crowd. That is until our team took a 35-7 to lead. 
I'm telling you, if that county doesn't have a thousand cases in the next week, based on the crowd and the game and the visitors from up north, I'm officially declaring this pandemic over. Thought you'd like to hear that some places in America, life still goes on. Sincerely, Kevin White. Kevin, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming to Kirksville, Missouri. I'm going to Wuhan. I'm going. I'm going to Stockholm, Sweden. I want to go everywhere. Sanity is prevailing. Brian Tingy, the Zabe, just had to tell you how much I thoroughly enjoyed the Zabe cast with your parents today. I loved listening to how your parents interacted with each other and with you. It's apparent you grew up in a great home with a lot of love. I did, and I'm very lucky. I loved hearing your dad explaining why he purchased a bunch of Subaru manuals when he didn't even own a Subaru. That and his story about his windfall profits that came from his Freon scheme had me laughing out loud. Yeah, my dad's a nut like that, but I love him. Today's Abecast was gold, Jerry. Gold. By the way, before I started listening, I saw the photo of your folks, not knowing who they were, but I deduced it was them right away. If you used one of those morph apps and put their faces together, it would spit out a photo of you. Well, thank God. I I don't want to be the mailman's kid. You are the spitting image of your dad from the top of the head down to just above the eyebrows and your mom from the eyebrows down to the neck. Spitting image image. Sincerely, Brian Tingey. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Mike Brown in Denver, Colorado on the mask front. Zabe, to answer your question posed on the Zabecast about masks, I wear a mask in public because it's a small price to pay to keep the Karens off my ass. I agree, and I get it. I'm with you on this, by the way. I will generally do that, but I was wondering about, you know, in an outdoor space like pumping your gas, no Karen's going to come up to you then, right? So that's what I was wondering about. But he says, that's the uh, thinking for me. My family has a differing opinion that it keeps them safe and others safe. But I'm just going to go along to get along. Then this from Chris Villanueva. Steve, the fact that you still equate wearing a mask with, quote, being afraid, unquote, is completely ignorant. And when coupled with the comment of, we're men here. And whatever other silly language you sprinkled in suggests some gaping insecurity. But hey, machismo. Should he lead with that? Get real. Evolve a bit. Hey man, why are you wearing those glasses? Or sunglasses, you pussy. That's a question you'd never ask someone. Yeah, because we know sunglasses work to shield your eyes from the sun. They work 100% observable and definable. We don't know that about masks, Chris. We don't have to explain that we're shielding ourselves from a very small risk of eye damage from sun exposure. Now, do we? Well, I don't know if it's a small risk. It's just, it's a comfort thing. Being kind and compassionate and not such an abrasive and aggressive Neanderthal might serve you well sometime. Smoke some herb or something. Calm down over there. Signed, Chris Villanueva. Thank you, Chris. I'll do my best to calm down. I am not into smoking herb, but I do use CBD oil, so maybe that's it. Doesn't get me high, but helps my joints. Here's how embarrassing the media can be when it comes to reporting on things like the pandemic. Stat News, Stat News, I think it's a news service, published the following paragraph. Quote, the infection fatality rate, also known as the case fatality rate, represents the percentage of people... Okay, I got to stop you right there. It's not also known as. They're two different...
different things. They go on to say, a percentage of people with COVID-19 who die from the disease. Getting a solid handle on the IFR is critical for accurate COVID-19 hospitalization and fatality projections, which are needed to guide public health measures. You know what's even more important than that? Knowing the fucking difference between IFR and CFR. CFR is we have a positive test and we're tracking that pool of people. Case fatality rate. IFR is... There's a bunch of people we know that we missed their their exposure to the virus. They were infected with the virus, but we never caught it. They never got a test. The CDC believes that the IFR is probably 10 times, at a minimum, the CFR. And that's the news lead. The infection fatality rate, also known as the case fatality rate, is very important to get an accurate handle on the... You didn't even get the terms right. Major news service. The public is no better at understanding the pandemic either. A recent survey asked people what percentage of the U.S. has died in the current pandemic. The number that most people chose was 9%. Nine. Most common answer. It's, of course, way off. In fact, once we get to 320,000 official, and I put that in quotes, deaths from and or with and or next to COVID-19 deaths. At that point, 320,000, we'll probably get there. We're getting close to 200. It's going to keep going. The the meter, the way we count them is going to keep going for some time. Once we get to that, we will be at one-tenth of 1% of the United States population. One-tenth of 1%, not 9%. But it strikes me that 9%, when I heard that, I said, that sounds like the kind of answer people might give as a reasonable number of, hmm, what could be bad enough that would cause the government to sweep in and institute all of these drastic, draconian, damaging, disrupting interventions, and yet, what is a number that is also such that, you know, I... I don't really see COVID-19 in my world. I don't really know. I mean, I know of a guy of a guy, somebody's uncle that died of it, but I don't know much more than that. It doesn't feel like it's affecting me. What would that number be? It seems like it would be 9%. Serious enough for the government to go crazy over it, and then not serious enough that you don't really know it in your life. The WHO's latest guidance on masks is pretty hilarious. This is from their website. Ready? Encouraging the public to create their own fabric masks may promote individual enterprise and community integration. Moreover, the production of non-medical masks may offer a source of income for those able to manufacture masks within their communities. Fabric masks can also be a form of cultural expression, writes the WHO. Who? Encouraging public acceptance of protection measures in general. The safe reuse of fabric masks will also reduce costs and waste and contribute to sustainability. Listen to all of those community left buzzwords, sustainability, cultural expression, uh, source of individual enterprise, community integration. What's missing in any of that is any science did i is there 
Is there science in here? Hold on, let me shake the bag. Hello, science? Are you there? Science? No. That's from the World Health Organization. Finally, one quote to end on. Thomas Sowell, who is a writer, columnist, I believe he's a professor. This goes under the great phrase of doing nothing is underrated, a phrase that Brian Nelson, when I was with Bob and Brian in the morning, would say often. I forget how we stumbled upon it. Maybe it was his catchphrase all along. But one day during a discussion, we're like, hey, sometimes doing nothing is very underrated. Doing nothing, I think, is underrated more than just sometimes. It's a lot of times doing nothing is the absolute best course of action. But of course, government is not geared to do nothing. And the people that seek power in government and positions, they are the type that love to do something. And they love to get accolades for what they did. They don't want to do nothing, even if it is the empirically better course of action, because they're not part of it then. Doing nothing is underrated. That's what Brian Nelson always used to say. Still does. This Thomas Sowell quote is brilliant. Quote, the beauty of doing nothing, he says, is that you can do it perfectly. Oh, that is so true. That deserves a gong of truth right there. The gong of truth. The beauty of doing nothing is that you can do it perfectly, he says. Only when you do something is it almost impossible to do the something without mistakes. And I will add a lot of mistakes. Therefore, people who are contributing nothing to society except their constant criticisms can feel both intellectually and morally superior. That is fucking brilliant. The beauty of doing nothing is that you can do it perfectly. Only when you do something is it almost impossible to do it without a lot of mistakes. And we'll leave you on that gong of truth today. Thank you so much for listening. Rate and review. Tell a couple people if uh, you enjoyed this little romp through your ears. Sounds weird, but that's what it is. This little get-together here on the interwebs. Uh, Rate and review. Tell a couple friends. Subscribe to Fridays if you want to be part of the full week experience and help support the podcast to keep going forward and growing, and I appreciate it very much. Thanks to Andy Poland tonight for coming in to talk about John Thompson, and we will see you next time.